You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Our scripture reading today is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and to release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They would be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long, long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are the light bringer. You bring light into our dark world. We, do, we thank you for your word that brings light. And we thank you that all of your word bears witness to the light of Jesus Christ. And we pray now that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word, that we might be those who respond to it with the whole of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, morning again. As you've already heard, this is the third Sunday of Advent. And I don't know if you noticed this, um, but when when the Ziggler's lit, the Advent wreath today, 
lit the candles. Thankfully, you didn't light the wreath. Um, that did happen once. Um, but I don't know if you noticed this, but the third candle, the candle that they lit for today, is pink. Did you, did you notice that? Um, and you might have wondered why. You might have thought, oh, I guess they just like ran out of purple candles and they stuck a pink one in there. But actually, um, that is intentional. The, the, the color for the third Sunday of Advent of the candle is, is always been pink. It's been pink for hundreds of years. And the reason for that is because this particular Sunday, the third Sunday of Advent, is called Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete is the Latin word for rejoice. It just means uh, take joy. And that comes from the ancient liturgy, the ancient mass uh, for the third Sunday of Advent that begins with rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so this Sunday is known as the Sunday of joy, which is really cool because, you know, as we've said in the past, Advent is considered to be kind of a mini Lent. It's a season in which we take stock of our lives, in which we do penitence, in which we repent, and we lament the state of the world. And yet, on this third Sunday, there's this little burst of color, this, this greater lightness of spirit among the, the, the purple morosity. And there is this sense of anticipation, joyful anticipation for the one that has been promised. So that's why the candle is pink, right? You can bring this up at your office Christmas party this year. I'm sure that your colleagues would be really interested in that. Anyway, um, so Advent, as we've said all these weeks, is about waiting. And I don't know what emotion kind of stirs up in you when you think about waiting, but joy is probably not the emotion that you think of. Um, you know, so much of life is waiting, and it's not particularly joyful if you're waiting for a pot of water to boil, or you're waiting at the doctor's office, or waiting at the DMV, or waiting for a test grade to come back, or you know, wait, waiting for, for a scan result. I mean, waiting, often we associate it with boredom, with with drudgery or, or even anxiety. And yet, there is a kind of waiting that is joyful. A bridegroom or a bride waits with joy for the wedding day. You know, parents, new parents waiting with anticipation for the birth of their first child. Or kids waiting for Christmas morning, you know, when you'll get the presents that you're you're hoping for. And so there is a kind of waiting that is full of joy. And today on Gaudete Sunday, the Sunday of joy, we're focusing on the truth that Christian waiting, Advent waiting, is always joyful waiting. That despite the darkness in the world, despite the sorrow that many of us carry in our hearts, despite the incompleteness of creation, Advent waiting, Christian waiting, is waiting with joy. How can that be? How can we wait with joy? Well, let's, let's dig into this wonderful text from Isaiah and talk about how, okay? So the, the, first, first, the first reason why Christians can wait with joy uh, is because of the character of the one who calls us to wait. If you're going to wait for a really long time, if somebody asks you to wait for something for a really long time, you have to trust them. You have to believe that they are going to fulfill the promise that they've made, right? Let me give you an example of how this, this uh, in my own life, in August of 2022, so last year, our minivan got into a fender bender, and so we had to take it to the body shop, and actually the body shop was able to fix it really quickly in like two weeks, but 
the, the guy from the body shop called me and said, everything's all done. We're just waiting on this one little part. It's called the SRS control unit. Apparently, it controls the airbags. You're just waiting on this little part, and it'll be here uh, September 9th, he said, just a couple weeks. I said, great, I can, I can wait. So I went on September 9th to pick up the part, and he said, oh, you know what? Actually, I forgot to call you. It'll be October 8th. I said, another month? He said, yeah, man, supply chain. Everybody's supply chain issues. So I went back September 8th, and he said, no, you know, I'm so sorry. It'll be November 8th. So I called him November 8th. He said, no, sorry, December 8th. This went on. So like the sixth or seventh time, I finally said to him, look, dude, I don't believe you. I don't trust you. In fact, I said, would you trust you? He said, no, I would not trust me. <laughs> Y'all, it ended up being um, 13 months that I waited for the SRS control unit as the completed minivan sat there. If you want to know how to get me to start having involuntary stress reactions, just come up behind me and whisper, SRS control unit. <laughs> Um, and, and my point is this, is that at some point along that period of waiting, I completely lost faith in the integrity of the person who was asking me to wait. If you're going to wait for a long time, you have to trust the integrity, the character of the one who is asking you to wait. Let's look at our text. So Isaiah 61, um, God's people have come back from the Babylonian exile. They've been living as prisoners in Babylon for 70 years, and they've come back and they've come back only to find that their entire homeland is in ruins. Their cities have been burned. The temple, their sacred temple has been destroyed. All of their dreams of returning home again have been reduced to ashes. And so this section of Isaiah, God is making promises to his people that he will restore. He will restore Israel. He will restore Zion. He will restore everything that has been lost. And what's interesting in these sections of Isaiah is that he begins to, Isaiah begins to speak about this shadowy, mysterious figure called the servant. Or sometimes he's called the anointed one, which means Messiah. And actually, he is the one who is speaking in these verses. This mysterious servant Messiah is speaking in Isaiah 61. And so he says this, he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoner. One day, God says, my servant Messiah is gonna come and he is the one who will bring restoration. He is the one who will redeem. He is the one who will restore. So I'm calling you, my people, to wait, wait for him. Watch for him, look for him. He is the one you're waiting for. He is the one who will redeem. And so what did the people do? They waited. And do you know how long they waited? Because you know how long they waited after this promise? 500, over 500 years. Over 500 years later, there was this young rabbi living in this backwater town called Nazareth. And he went to synagogue one day and it was his, he was training as a rabbi. It was his turn to give his first sermon. And so he got up, you know, like I do every week. He got up to give the sermon, and then somebody handed him the Bible. And of course, they didn't have books back then. They had scrolls. And so they handed him the scroll of the Old Testament. And so Jesus took the scroll, and he opened it up. And guess what he did? He, 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 found, he found the place where these verses are, Isaiah 61. 
And he read these verses. The spirit of the Lord is on me. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, broke, spend up the brokenhearted. And he finished and he rolled it back up and he handed it to the attendant and he got up to preach. And do you know what he said? <laughs> he said, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Astonishing, right? He said, all your waiting, all your longing, all your looking, all your watching, it all ends today with me. I mean, there's so much we can say about that astonishing <laughs> event. But here's just the simple point that I want to make is that God kept his promise. God promised that his servant, the anointed Messiah, would come. And he was faithful to his promise to his people. God says in verse 8, I, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity and my faithfulness. I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. What God means here is that he is a God who loves, who is faithful and just, and therefore God always does what God promises. Y'all, God's, God's not like us. We break our promises every day. God never breaks his promise because to do so would actually to be contravene his own divine character. And as John Calvin said, God is always like himself. He cannot turn against his own divine nature. So God keeps his promises. If God asks you to wait, and he's asking all of y'all to wait, if God asks you to wait, you can trust, you can trust that he will make good on his promises. And the proof, the undeniable proof, is that God fulfilled his promise to send his Messiah into the world. He came. He came for us. So here's the first reason why can we can be joyful in our waiting, because unlike my body shop guy, we can trust the integrity of the one who is asking us to wait. To quote my favorite Advent writer, Fleming Rutledge, she writes this, um, in spite of God's apparent hiddenness, the memory of what God has done in the past continues to activate hope for what he will do in the future this is the movement of the Advent season. The God who hides himself is still the God of the covenant. He's the God of the promise. So much of our lives is lived with God's hiddenness. We literally can't see him. We can't see, oftentimes we can't see his power. We can't see what God is up to. And maybe there are even times in your life, maybe right now, where you're wondering, is he really there? Is God really faithful? Is Jesus really coming for us? Does this world really have hope? And what we know is this, is the God who hides himself is still the God of the covenant. Never forget that God fulfilled his promise in sending Jesus and he will do so again. He showed up in power, he will reveal his power again. Despite appearances sometimes, God can be trusted. The one who's promised is faithful. So that's the first reason we can wait with joy is because we can trust the person. We can trust the God who's asking us to wait. The second reason why Christians can wait with joy is because of the content of what it is that we're waiting for. If, if you're going to be waiting joyfully, what you're waiting for has to be worth it, right? Kids, let me ask you a question. Let's say you had to sit in a room Sit in your room and never leave for a whole year and only eat Brussels sprouts. But at the end of the year, I would give you a million dollars. Would you do it? Yes. yes, of course, right? You can endure Brussels sprouts for a year, right? Now, what about this? I stick you in your room. All you can eat is Brussels sprouts. At the end of the year, I will give you $15. 
would you do it? No, of course not, right? Because it's not worth it. You know, if you're going to wait for a long time, then what you're waiting for has to be worth it. It, it reminds me, actually, of um, one of my favorite Christmas movies, um, Christmas Story with, with Ralphie. Remember that? So Ralphie sends away for his little orphan Annie decoder pin, and he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and he runs to the mailbox every day, and finally, finally it shows up, and he takes the decoder pin, and he listens to the Orphan Annie show that night, and he gets the secret code, and he takes the code and the pin, and he runs up into the bathroom, and he locks the door, and his mom and his brother are banging on the door, and he is quickly, as fast as he can, trying to decode this secret code because he knows that this is the most important message that he has ever received, and he has waited for this secret coded message for all these weeks, and finally he finishes it, and he looks down, and it says, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. (laughs) And he's crushed, right, right? All that he was waiting for, you know, a dupe. It's, it's It's a lie, it's a disappointment. It's just a crummy commercial. So if you're going to wait, the thing you're waiting for has to be worth it. So what are we waiting for in Advent? Well, look at verse 2. The Messiah says, I am anointed, and he mentions all these things. And then in verse 2, he says, I am anointed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is that? Well, that is a reference to the Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. And it's a reference to part of the Mosaic law that is included in Leviticus 25, And the law of the year of Jubilee was a law in ancient Israel that on the 50th year, every 50th year was called the the Jubilee year, and it was a year of relief and release in which all debts were canceled, in which all slaves and servants were freed, and which if people had to sell their properties because they were in a bad way along along the years, they were all of their properties were restored back to them again, right? So no, I mean, this is astonishing. No matter how many mistakes that you have made and no matter how, what deep of a hole of debt that you've gotten yourself into and how awry maybe your life has gotten, you would always, at least once in your lifetime, there would be a chance to start afresh. It was a year of restoration, liberation, joyful freedom. That's Jubilee. And here... What what the Messiah says, when the Messiah comes, he will proclaim not a jubilee, but the jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. He he says that this will be, I am going to bring the ultimate jubilee to all of creation so that everything in creation that has been wasted and lost will be restored. He says in verse 3, I will take ashes. I will take their crown. This is actually a play on words because the word ashes and crown of beauty are the same Hebrew word except one or a couple, couple letters. So he says, I will take your, your ashes, which ancient Israelites wore when they were mourning in a time of great loss. I will take your ashes and I will replace it with a crown of beauty, which is what brides would wear at a time of wedding celebration. So he says, I will replace all mourning with gladness. I will take your spirit of despair and replace it with praise. The Messiah will wipe away sorrow and bring everlasting joy. Now, you know, when Jesus came, he certainly did bring a lot of joy, but this is mainly speaking about the future, the future that God will one day bring. The scripture promises, you can read about this in Revelation. It says that the new heavens and the new earth will come. And that all of creation will experience what Paul says 
is it's liberation from its bondage to decay. All of creation will experience a jubilee, right? Our, y'all, I know this is hard to believe, but this is true, that our physical material world, this broken world that we live in, will experience a renewal in which all that is evil and shadowed and broken will be wiped away. Poverty, injustice, hunger, disease, suffering, death will be purged from this material creation in all the ways that you personally have experienced profound disappointment. All the ways that you've been broken and you've lost and you've gone into deep holes of sorrow and debt. All the ways that your dreams have turned to ashes. All of those things in that day of Jubilee, God's gonna restore and everything that you ever dreamed for and longed for will be restored by the God of joy. This is the future. This is what is promised in and through the Messiah. And this is what makes our our waiting worth it. A new heavens and new earth, a God-drenched universe of joy and freedom. So here's my question to you. What are you waiting for? What, What are you waiting for? Many of you, I know, feel like you're just drifting through life and life feels like one big act of drudgery. You're just going through the motions. Every day is the same. And you don't have any joy. Could it be that you have forgotten what you're waiting for? Could it be that you never knew what you were waiting for? (laughs) Could it be that you're waiting for the wrong thing? Could it be that you're just waiting for whatever, the next vacation, the next trip, Um, when you finally get the income that you're wanting, uh, some retirement project or some mythical day when you'll finally be happy. I mean, what what are you waiting for? These things, it's a sham, y'all. Just like the decoder ring, it's a sham. So, So many of our hopes, so many of the things that we live for don't have the strength to uphold our souls. And so an advent is a time to refocus your hope to orient your perspective around the thing that we are truly waiting for, what you were made for, to live with God in a new, restored creation in a world of love forever. This is what we're waiting for, and that is worth it. So this is why, despite everything, we can be people who wait with hope. One, because we can trust the character of the one who's asking us to wait, He's faithful. And two, because what we're waiting for is worth it. It's worth every second and every day and every year. We've got to wait. So how can we apply this? As I come to a close, let me just try to apply this because I do know that um, a lot of you are dealing with really hard stuff. Some of you are in very challenging circumstances. Some of you are in problems that you just don't know how we're ever going to get fixed. And, And frankly, it can be a really hard thing to live with joy in the midst of pain and sorrow and overwhelming problems. So let's think about how we can put this into practice in the present. So first, here's a few encouragements I wanna make to you. First of all, um, receive. Just receive, simply receive the joy. In verse three, going back to verse three, the Messiah says, I will give you a crown of beauty instead of, or in place of ashes, I will give you gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. 
You know, as I was meditating on this this week, it struck me, it's so powerful that in just a few chapters before, in Isaiah 53, when Isaiah is speaking again of the servant, he says of this Messiah servant, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. It says, surely he takes up our infirmities and carries our sorrow. So before, so many years before the coming of Christ, this speaks of the gospel. It speaks of the great exchange that he takes what is ours and gives what is his. That Jesus says to you, give me your sorrow, your shame, your sin, your ashes, and I will give you my gladness, my joy, my beauty, my status as the beloved son of God. As Paul says, to paraphrase Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, um, the beautiful one made himself ugly that those who are trapped in ugliness might become beautiful. This is the great exchange of the gospel, that Jesus Christ comes into our world to take what is ours, that we might have what is his, that we might be the beloved children of God through Christ forever. So my first invitation to you, um, honestly, to be real direct, is, uh, is to become a Christian. And a lot of you are churchgoers, but you're not Christians. Um, and, and to become a Christian means not to try hard, not to earn anything, but to simply receive the gift of God's grace for you in Jesus Christ. God wants to give you joy before it's a feeling, it's a status that you're a child of the living God. Nothing you earn, something you received by God's grace in Christ. And it's a joy, it's an anchor of joy that no circumstance, no suffering, no trial can ever take from you. This is the how joy begins, is by simply receiving God's gift of grace to you through Jesus by grace. So that's my first invitation, is that you would receive joy. Second, um, practice joy. I don't want to give you the impression that if you just trust in Jesus, you'll be a joyful person. Some of you have won the dopamine lottery um, or you're an Enneagram 7. Uh, good for you. Um, that's really great. Um, <laughs> others of us, uh, like me, um, battle dark moods and feelings. Uh, maybe you, you struggle with um, depression. I was diagnosed with clinical depression as a teenager, so it's something I struggled with all my life. Or maybe you're just in such a painful and difficult season that you can't even remember the last time you felt joy. How do those of us who are in those situations experience joy? Well, I know, um, I know I talk a lot about Henry Nouwen because he's one of my heroes, and he, for me, has become a mentor, though I never knew him, of course, but because he also is a person who struggled with intense mental anguish and depression at times, and yet he fought for joy every day. He said this, people who have come to know the joy of God do not deny the darkness, but they choose not to live in it. What Nowen has taught me is that joy is not just a gift, it is a discipline, that it takes practice to choose joy even in the midst of darkness. And as Christians, we do this by faith because we trust that even when sorrow and darkness seem to be all around us or even inside of us, we choose to believe. It's a discipline. We, we choose it every day that God's goodness is greater than evil, 
that God's light is stronger than darkness and that joy is ultimately stronger than sorrow. You know, when Paul says in Second and First Thessalonians, be joyful always, he doesn't mean continuously feel feelings of happiness. What he means is every day discipline your body, mind, and soul to orient yourself to the truth of your belovedness in Christ and the coming of his kingdom. Every day, choose to orient and live in that reality. Now, what I've learned is this. Now, through Christ and the gift of the Spirit, you don't have to be a victim of your genetics. You don't even have to be a victim of your circumstances. With the help of the Spirit, you can take responsibility for your own joy. How does this happen? It takes practice, right? Um, disciplines of gratitude is a huge part of this. Um, scripture meditation, I practice something called uh, Christian mindfulness, which is just sort of an awareness of God's presence and goodness at all times and places. It says in verse three, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. This is a discipline of choosing to praise God and look for his goodness even in times of sorrow. To, learning to tune the mind to the truths of God's goodness in Christ. I've needed the help of a therapist to do that. You might need that too. But all of us can practice this in disciplining our minds towards what is true. And that is the joy of God triumphs over all sorrow. One day, all of our ashes will be replaced with a crown of beauty. But now, in the time in between, we can find beauty alongside the ashes. We can have that hot faucet turned up along with the cold. We can taste the joy even when the sorrow is strong. So that's my invitation. Not just receive it, but practice it. And then finally, to embody the joy. The great New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says that between the first and second comings of Christ, God's people, Christians are called to be people of the Jubilee. People of the Jubilee. One day the Jubilee is coming when God will redeem and wipe away all debt, all oppression, all sorrow, all death. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Be little previews of that day of Jubilee. Be people of the Jubilee. Put into practice the principles of the Jubilee in the way that we live our life now. What does that mean? It means we act crazy. Like we forgive sacrificially no matter what. We give radically, generously, recklessly. We open our homes to people that we've been told we're not supposed to hang out with. Right? We release people from debt. We don't charge interest. We fight against oppression. We preach good news, we rebuild cities, we heal broken bodies, we restore places long devastated. See, as we wait for the Jubilee, we act and live as Jubilee people. We live out the, the, the job description of the Messiah because his life is in us. So and as you get to work in the business of the Messiah, not only will you taste his joy, but you extend his joy to the world. So friends, let me close. We are those who wait, and yet we wait with joy. And we can do this because of the character of the one who calls us to wait and because what we're waiting for is worth it. The great American writer Wendell Berry, in one of his most astonishing poems, writes these words, be joyful though you have considered all the facts. <laughs> be joyful 
though you have considered all the facts. And the facts are strong. The world is dark. Sorrow is pervasive. Brokenness is real. Things are not as they should be. And yet, though we have considered all the facts, we wait with joy and we do so because Christ has come, Christ is coming, Christ will come again. And we wait for that day as when we will sing in just a moment, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. His joy is coming. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have brought Jesus. You sent him after all those many, many years. Your people waited, and here we are again waiting for him. And yet we trust you. We trust that as you made that promise and fulfilled it the first time, you have made that promise and you will fulfill it again. We can trust you. And we wait with joy because we know that what it is that we are waiting for is so worth it. That we are longing for that day of jubilee. When all ashes will be turned to beauty. Help us to be those in the meantime who are jubilee people, who focus our hopes on the right thing, who don't get distracted by foolish shams, and who live in this world that often feels very dark as people who are agents of joy, practicing it ourselves, spreading it to others. We pray this in Jesus' name.